Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and this is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. And with me, as always, is Reverend Dr. David P. Gushy. Ta-da! <laughs> and it is 2020. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Jeremy. Do you have, does your family have any New Year's traditions that you'll engage in? We used to do the, the New Year's night dinner with the traditional foods, including black-eyed peas. Okay. We didn't do that this year because my wife was all entertained out. She just could not do another meal. Um, but um, Christmas got y'all? Yeah, we had a lot of Christmas this year. So uh, I'd say it's it feels like a year of uh, a time of cleaning the decks and simplifying and making some specific goals and then going after it. The school year starts for us, you know, and we have little ones now five and one and a half who come to our house every morning at 7 a.m. So as we have the practical uh, responsibilities with them that uh, that's kind of what's on my mind plus going back to school uh, mm-hmm. for the first time um, since around May 1st of 2019 so I, I'm going to learn how to be a professor yeah again. you're looking forward to it I am I'm really ready to be back I am that's awesome I have 30 students waiting for me in Macon to uh, to learn about great moral leaders and then in Atlanta I'm teaching Dietrich Bonhoeffer again I try to do that every three years is it breakfast with Bonhoeffer? No, it's it's a dinner with Bonhoeffer okay. this year. Yeah. When, when I took the Bonhoeffer class with you in 2016, 2017, it was at 7.30 in the morning. I believe it was at 7 in the morning. Set, why, did, why would anyone do that to us? I pledged, I made a promise to myself, a covenant, <laughs> a sacred vow in undergrad that I would never do an 8 a.m. class again. When you didn't, you did a 7 a.m. You took me to 7 a.m. That's right. I mean, that's... That's just love and loyalty right there. Uh, and, and see, I'm so excited about that, and I'm teaching the ethics survey class again. So every time I teach, I, I, it's, it feels fresh and new, and I try to I try to freshen up the approach, and I'm excited to be back in the classroom. Very good. And I'm going back to school this year. That should be interesting to see what happens uh, doing that Doctor of Ministry program. We will see you around the halls. Yep, I'll, I'll be there. There may... They're making me show up at 8 a.m. tomorrow for a mandatory orientation to campus. I've been on 10 years. And I need to <laughs> mandatorily orient me again to it. Um, so 2020, new year, new classes, new goals, three new books. Uh, one of them has been pretty long in the coming, and we've been talking about it for a while, and that's the after evangelical. Is it after evangelicalism? Mm-hmm. or Okay. After evangelicalism, um, why that book now? Well, you might say that my writing career uh, has a um, a track of exploring ethical issues. So you might say scholarship in Christian ethics. So the Kingdom Ethics book, the Sacredness of Life book, the various books on peacemaking and so on. And all, if not most, in the evangelical world, right? Well, that's because that's where most of my career was spent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, aiming <clears throat> aiming for that audience. Um, but uh, since I wrote Changing Our Mind in 2014, which argued for full LGBTQ inclusion in the church, there's been a different kind of drama uh, happening in my life, um, and 
it has yielded um, a couple of books. The drama is um, being pushed out or perceiving myself as being pushed out of evangelical mm-hmm. Christianity and and then looking back at the world that I was leaving and trying to understand what that world really was and uh, what to make of it now. What, how will I identify myself? How will I, th- how will I think about my religious identity now? And the main, the main book that uh, explores that so far is my memoir called Still Christian, which is still selling well, by the way. A lot of people read that book. And that was with Westminster John Knox, and that came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. And this book, After Evangelicalism, I'm really excited about it. Um, it feels like, at one level, concluding the story of my religious identity. So, but it's not really memoirish. You've read it. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not really memoirish much at all. But really, what I would say is, it is a scholarly and pastoral analysis of what went wrong with U.S. white evangelicalism and attempting to to speak to a large number of, I would say millions, of especially young people who are leaving it behind and many of them are leaving Christianity behind. And to say, uh, to say let's think about what happened here and let's ask where do we go from here. Uh, the original title of the book was "For the Post Evangelicals: Where Do We Go From Here?" Mm-hmm. And uh, Westminster wants the "After Evangelicalism" title. We're not sure yet about a subtitle; it's still developing. Yeah, and that's fine. I'm happy with the title. So, so yeah, it is an exploration of, uh, and it's it, it's it's more scholarly than I thought it was going to be. As you've as you've seen, it's, yeah, parts of it are dense. It's dense. It's lots of footnotes. It's lots of um, so you might say it's lots of scholarly engagement with evangelicalism as a phenomenon and also with theological, methodological, and ethical issues that are specifically important from my perspective. So I'm, I'm, uh, it might, one might say that it, in a sense it pulls together the scholarly track and the popular track. Yeah, it's who did your target audience change in the writing? No, but I concluded that I didn't need to write another um, fairly short statement of my opinions. Mm-hmm. I needed to write a scholarly, even though I mean, we're, we're aiming for a broad audience still, but a scholarly rich kind of analysis of what went wrong that has some heft to it. Yeah, because it, it's, it's got some academic heft, and it's, like you said, it's full of footnotes, and it's densely researched but the tone is approachable even playful at times at times sad at times mm-hmm. um but yeah so the idea would be and this is not easy to do but a book that you know you're a 28 year old college graduate who grew up in such and such bible church and now doesn't go to church anymore because they're so thoroughly disgusted mm-hmm. and and they pick it up at the bookstore and they say well maybe there's something here for me I mean, and so I'd say it's for the college, college educated level, okay. you know, um, so maybe less likely to be picked up by a high school educated person. A little, there's a little more density to it than that. But, um, 
for the thoughtful, decently educated person who wants to figure out what went wrong with the tradition that they were raised in and whether they can still believe in Jesus anymore, what they should believe about the Bible, about sex, about race, about politics, about Jesus, about um, evangelicalism itself. I'm pretty excited about it. That's a really good commercial right there. So um, we're still refining our language for talking about the book, Mm -hmm. but um, I'm lecturing on it in in advance of the of the release of the book all over the country the spring. I'm really excited about the opportunities there. There's a lot of people. There's a moment happening right now, and Mm -hmm. people sense that. And maybe I'll catch that moment. I hope so. What What are you most hopeful about with the book? Um. Other than sales, well, I'm a <laughs> I'm a pastor at heart. I've been I've been operating out of a sense of call to be a pastor since I was 17 years old. Uh, it's been a while, and my main hope is pastoral. Um, I would like that that um, cohort. You know, there's one there's an estimate in the book that there are at least 25 million ex-evangelicals in the U.S., and that may be a low estimate. Mm. And I would like this book to speak to them. Um, I'm especially concerned for those who are who are not in an active relationship with Jesus anymore or in church because they're so turned off that they might say, wow, that the picture of Jesus that is offered here and the picture of a Christian way of thinking and living will, um, will attract them um, and that they'll reconsider um, faith. Yeah. Well, could you uh, could you give us an overview? Could you walk us through uh, what the book will look like? Uh, what the chapters are? Maybe why you chose the subjects that became each of the chapters? Sure. Um, the book has nine chapters and a substantial introduction, and uh, so this is the flow. Um, the intro talks about the post-evangelical or ex-evangelical world, what we know about it, how many people it involves, um, why people are leaving. Uh, A lot of polling data is drawn on Mm -hmm. here. Um, uh, I I zoom out some to talk about the global, uh, some global uh, comparisons. This is not just a U.S. phenomenon. I actually conclude from my travels that Australia is the single nation in the world that offers this, the most similar uh, dynamics to the huh. U.S. right now on this, from my uh, several trips to Australia. Um, but So, in other words, there's some global patterns here. Uh, LGBT um, inclusion is a threshold issue uh, that has driven a lot of people out of mm-hmm. evangelicalism, but there, but there are other issues as well. Um, I, I talk about that a little bit there. And then I talk about my own story, kind of recapitulate uh, how I became a born-again Southern Baptist Christian as a 16-year-old, how I came to identify deeply with progressive evangelicalism, center-left evangelicalism, beginning in my doctoral years, and how that identity sustained me until I wrote Changing Our Mind, which was about 25 years later. Um, then in... Then, uh, I do a, a history of modern evangelicalism that is far more extensive than I've ever written um, related to um, to that. And so 
basically in the first full chapter, I argue that um, evangelicalism was a rebranding move of a certain group of ambitious, mainly young fundamentalists in the mm-hmm. 1940s in the U.S. who were trying to um, pull fundamentalism out of its backward and angry mode, but also to retain the tenets of conservative Protestant theology over against mainline liberal Protestantism. So they, there was a third way move to an extent, and, and they, they, were, they also built institutions around their vision, which included Christianity Today magazine and the National Association of Evangelicals and Fuller Seminary and a number of others. And their great achievement was they actually succeeded in this rebranding and in the creation of an evangelical identity and eventually something like an evangelical community, though though the latter has been fractious and difficult. Right. Um, but I also talk in that chapter about some of the downsides of this. Um, who wasn't really included? Uh, problems of identity. And um, I think this chapter will be especially interesting to those who have felt that the evangelical identity and evangelical label has has been at least as much of a problem for them as has it been of any help to them. Um, for example, um, Wesleyan, Pentecostal, uh, Arminian, Holiness, Quaker, Anabaptist, um, the dis- uh, feminist, which are even just women, uh, African-American and uh, other evangelical or people of conservative theology, but who are never really fully included in right. this movement that was built by these white guys in the 1940s and 50s. So the whole that chapter is kind of about all that, and it helps me feel better about understanding that modern American evangelicalism was a constructed identity. It was, they took a term from the past, evangelical. They used it to relabel who they were and said, everybody should be this, and this is the way of the future. And and to a large extent, they succeeded. It spread everywhere. You can find, in in places that are completely non-evangelical, you can find folks saying that they're evangelical because it sounds like the thing you're supposed to be. It yeah. became nearly synonymous with Protestant yeah. in America for a while. Yeah. Um, and there, there's these weird, pla- like... Um, I served at a ELCA church, an Evangelical Lutheran church yeah. in America, ELCA. Yeah. Not at all part of the, quote, evangelical tradition, very liberal, very left, very continental, very Lutheran. Um, but that were really, really mattered to them. And a lot of people in the church were walked around saying, we're evangelicals. I'm an evangelical. I go to the... And would routinely get confused yeah. around these terms. And it's sort of the the movement and its ideas, it, its proof texts, its shibboleths, they snuck into even a lot of mainline cultural pieces. Yeah, the, the, the scholarship around that identity is really dense and important, and I dug around in it. So uh, maybe on another... On another show, we can go into more detail there. But yes, there's a lot to be said there. Um, so let's just maybe just hop and skip through the through the rest of it. So so that's that chapter. Then I have a chapter on scripture in which I deconstruct the concept of biblical inerrancy mm-hmm. and propose that 
that that concept is from one particular strand of fundamentalism, which became evangelicalism, and that it is not the best way to understand the Bible. But isn't that the way everyone's always understood the Bible? No. And and so <laughs> just moves on. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> but one reason again, the purpose of the book is pastoral part. Right. Many people have lost their faith when the inerrancy that they were taught mm-hmm. bumped up against the Bible that they were actually reading. And so I propose a way to continue to cherish the Bible but to abandon inerrancy. So that's that chapter. Then I have the next chapter is essentially a broader discussion of how do we know anything theologically. And so um, I discuss three kind of um, types of sources or resources for knowing. Um, those that are in the Christian tradition, those that are in human nature, like uh, intuition and emotion and mm-hmm. reason, and those that are in the world, basically the arts and sciences. <clears throat> and so um, I propose a, a broader a broader uh, portfolio of ways of knowing things than Scripture alone. I also propose that um, that one can retrieve the term Christian humanism from uh, the Renaissance to describe a vision, something like what I'm trying to articulate. And so that's a preview. I'm going to use the term Christian humanism in the book as a overall label for the vision that I'm proposing. Mm-hmm. So that's worth talking about sometime. The fourth chapter uh, is a foray into the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, and um, my rendering of the of the resources and challenges of the vision of God and of of the um, of how one relates to God that we get in the Hebrew Bible. The fifth chapter is an account of Jesus, and I'm excited about it because I've written a lot about Jesus Jesus ethics in in the past, but this is a kind of a a big picture. Here's my take on on Jesus, and that chapter is fun because um, I contrast the Jesus Jesus as apocalyptic prophet, lynched God man, and risen Lord, with what I describe as less satisfactory evangelical Jesuses that are out there. Right, and um, so I, that that has a bit of a punch to it. Then I have a chapter on church, of both theology of church and also practically. If you are a post-evangelical, do you go to church? And if so, where do you go to church? Mm-hmm. And, um, boy, that's worth talking about sometime. There are a lot of people asking that question. And then the last... You should the, go to Townview Baptist in Kennesaw. There you go, you uh, Jeremy. Go. All persons in the world uh, should go to Townview Baptist. Um, then the last triad of the book, it's three chapters, on what do we do about uh, sexual ethics if we don't accept you know, the, the evangelical posture especially in this rejection of gay people, what do we do instead? Is it anything goes, or is there a vision there? Because the options seem to be uh, purity or consent. Right. Those are the only two options that most people see on the table. Yeah, heterosexual only purity, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and then I have a chapter on uh, evangelicals and politics, and then a, a really bracing chapter on evangelicals and race, and post-evangelicals and race. Where do we go from here? Um, the book is also going, I think, hopefully going to contain a typology of post-evangelicals that, are, that a, a new friend who was one of my readers put together. And uh, it's nine types of post-evangelicals. So, as I am preparing lectures 
um, around the country, I'm prepared to talk about any of these themes to whoever would like. I think that the the biblical chapters, the Old and New Testament chapters, may be especially fertile ground for sermons. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who are wrestling with what do I do, what do we do as churches to serve post-evangelicals, to, theolo- to offer a theology that speaks to post-evangelicals, um, hopefully it's all relevant, but but um, like the first set of lectures I'm giving is next week, uh, the second week of January in San Antonio, and they've asked for um, a lecture on the post-evangelical reality, on that history of evangelicalism, on scripture and method, and on church. Wow, and that this is a pastor's conference, This is Vineyard, right? Vineyard Group. Vineyard How'd you church. end up with Vineyard? They... They knew about me somehow and um, were interested because, see, the Vineyard the vineyard Church grew out of the Jesus People movement mm-hmm. of the 60s and 70s. And um, they have been one of, they're kind of, they're Pentecostal. Um, they're, they've been one of the groups that has been kind of umbrellaed into the evangelical world. Right. And at least the people who are inviting me for this event, they're asking whether that's where they want to position themselves now. Whether whether it's time to think about another way. And one of the things I argue in the evangelicalism chapter is that I think a lot of these movements would be better off detaching from the evangelical label and just being vineyard, being Pentecostal, being brethren in Christ, being Wesleyan holiness, whatever. Be who you are. Right. That that the the broader umbrella label actually obscures theological distinctives and it brings a power structure to bear. Mm-hmm. If you're in the big tent, then, people can only see the tent. Yeah, and the big tent uh, arbiters, the powerful people in the big tent, are going to try to tell you what you're allowed to believe and do. And it's time for a declaration of independence on the part of some of these movements saying, no, thank you, we don't really mm-hmm. care what Christianity Day magazine says or what some pugnacious blogger who feels like he is the uh, arbiter of, of uh, you know, of theological purity. I've been getting hassled lately by a dude named, uh, I don't know his name, he's Doctrinal Watchdog. That's actually what he calls himself? Yes. He, he posted a sermon from my church where he replaces the preacher's voice with fart noises. Oh, that's um, very helpful. Yeah. That's for it's, sure. Yeah. yeah. But he's been, uh, he, we're on his hit list. I've been on such hit lists. Um, and... Um, so you asked what is the, the fondest hope for the book the, yeah. fo- the fondest hope for the book is pastoral but but the next would be that academics and church leaders would say this is good scholarship and it helps us figure out where we go from here um, I would hope and by the way this um, I, I posted a picture one day of uh, on online of all the books I was looking at related to race. Do you remember that mm-hmm. picture, Jeremy? Um, but there was like that on every subject, and so there was a it was a fun, embracing intellectual challenge because um, here's a whole stack of books on New Testament and Jesus. Here's a whole stack of books on race. Here's a whole stack of books on sexuality. Here's that on evangelicalism. Right. So so a project like this involves. Um, attempting to engage a scholarly literature in about eight different areas. And, you know, the high-end specialists may not be satisfied with it. Did I get every book? Did I get every article that I needed to? But I'm hoping that 
most will say this is respectable scholarship and this gives us mm-hmm. insights for where we go from here. Um, so I hope, I hope that it speaks into the current moment. And, you know, one way to say it, I say this in the book, there are various accounts of Christian faith. There's not just Christian faith, there's versions of Christian faith. White evangelical Christianity gave one kind of specific version of Christian faith um, that a lot of people are finding inadequate now. So what do we do instead? Right. And this is a book about both what went wrong and what do we do instead. So um, I am eager to, to see what happens with it. But already this spring, I'll be talking in churches and uh uh, some academic environments about the themes of the book. Very good. And we'll, um, as the season continues, we will explore in depth some of those specific topics. That would be good. 